David Ogilvy once said, give me the freedom of a tight brief. He knew that creative effectiveness came from focus and clarity of constraints. In many respects, you can apply a similar outlook to empower teams to be more creative. We'll never win going head to head with playing the traditional media game, dollar for dollar. We lose on that game. But we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose because we have a greater purpose. We have a greater purpose that inspires us to win. And in order to do that, we have to be more creative within the constraints of the smaller budgets. And so we're very choiceful when it comes to how are we going to stand out with this media? How are we going to get shares? How are we going to get people to talk about us? You know, our marketing mission is about getting more bums and driving advocacy. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Ronalee Zarate Bayani. She is the chief brand officer of one of our favorite challenger brands, Who Gives a Crap? They are disrupting the 31 billion dollar industry of toilet paper as well as some other categories that they're now starting to get into but as you hear in the beginning of this they are a brand that have been on our wish list for scratch for a while now so it's super exciting to have Ron Lee on the show she has previously held posts as the CMO of the Los Angeles Rams in the NFL back in the US and the head of global integrated marketing at the Hershey company so she's got this fascinating perspective and really base and foundation of working in very big global brands and now joining Who Gives a Crap at a really exciting stage in their growth as they go from a challenger to a more scaled rival brand. Um, And the thing that's interesting for them, you probably have heard of them or maybe you're going to look them up now, but they are a purpose-driven, eco-conscious, profit-for-purpose consumer goods company. The biggest thing within that, besides all the marketing and the brand and the positioning stuff that we talk about and being purpose-led, is they actually donate 50% of their profits. So they have donated over $13 million to date. And so, you know, of course, we talk about how to build and how to find the balance of being a purpose-led brand that, of course, absolutely needs to build profit as well. But we also talk about really her approach as chief brand officer and why it's important that she had that title internally and what it means for how the company operates. Some of the other things that I love with what she shared with us is how she's thinking about approaching that transition from being a challenger to being a scaled rival. And also the fact that product innovation actually sits within her team. So she and the team at Who Gives a Crap are doing some really fascinating things on the product side, on the brand side, how they're building this company and how they're building this culture. There's so much in here that I think everybody can learn from. So I'm gonna let you get on with the episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Ronna Lee of Who Gives a Crap. Ronna Lee. Welcome to the show. How are things in Los Angeles today? Things are wonderful. Thanks for having me. Well, I really appreciate you making the time. I know we've been chasing you to come on for a while because I was genuine when I said it. You and Who Gives a Crap have been on our wish list for a while uh, for Scratch. So I'm excited for today and thank you again. Yep, We're honored. Honored to be here. So we're going to get into everything about who gives a crap and what you're doing there for people who haven't heard um, and a deeper dive for those of us that are already fans, if not customers. But before we do that, quick icebreaker for you. Can you tell us about one challenger brand that you're passionate about right now and why? 
One? Ooh, that's hard. I'm going to rattle a few. <laughs> Liquid death, brain dog, Oatly, vacation in, for a whole host of different reasons, but each one brings kind of a magic and a spark that is uniquely themselves that I really love. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, between those, is there is that kind of the red thread that you would draw of how you relate to challenger brands is the ones that kind of give you a spark? And what does that kind of mean? How do you, how do you think of that in kind of marketing terms? They're uniquely themselves. So one of the interesting things about them is you can distinctly know their brand. And there's something pretty special about that. And not only do you know their brand, they stand for something. And I think that is what makes it special and why they've been able to kind of um, punch above their weight and break from the fray. Yeah, we talk a lot about um, in the brand, the positioning work that we do, but also kind of the content research that we produce around it, finding and owning a clear point of difference in a category. And oftentimes with challenger brands, that comes from the purpose that exists within the company. And it makes it so simple when all you have to do is kind of, I mean, yeah, simple, not easy, but simple when all you have to do is kind of tell that story. Um, but obviously that's harder and I don't go off track already, but you know, you're at who gives a crap, which we would put into kind of the challenger uh, category or side of the industry right now, certainly against some of the incumbents and in the space that you're in, but obviously you've worked at bigger incumbent brands, including Hershey and even within the NFL, Los Angeles Rams. How do you, how have you, how do you, if that is what, let's just say good, effective brands, a big part of what they do, how are you, how do you navigate that when you're at a bigger company and it's not kind of as natural or like oozing out of the business day in and day out with everything that you do? It's a good question and it's challenging. Um, part of it is kind of saying, who are we that makes us distinctly us? Um, and knowing that to a T, I think for the most part, what ends up happening, particularly as companies scale, is that um, you you apply so many of these best practices and things that others are doing, and you start to lose yourself a little bit. Um, and so it's about going deep inside, just as any human would, as you're in out there kind of growing yourself, you need to figure out what your superpower is. And knowing what distinctly makes you you, if you can harness that and really embrace that, then that becomes your superpower. And when you have your superpower on its best, there's no stopping you. You're just going to constantly break through the clutter and come through and come out. And it gives you the courage as a brand, as a marketing leader, to say, nope, this is us. And who cares, right, what everybody else is doing? We're going to do this because this is how we win and this is how we're going to shine. And it's about really figuring that out and then evangelizing almost internally to make sure that that is the essence with which you're building your strategies, you're looking at your activations, you're pressure testing the things that you're trying to do to say, does this still deliver against this? Is this still us or are we playing someone else's game? I'm actually curious on that. So your title of chief brand officer, um, actually, you know what? Maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself before we get into that. Cause I'm always curious about chief brand officer versus chief marketing officer and kind of how those titles and structures differ. But let's take a step back for those who don't know. Can you give us an overview of who gives a crap? Yep. We're a global profit for purpose 
eco-friendly consumer products company. Now, what that means is that we actually have a very unique business model where we donate 50% of our profits. And because that is at the heart of our business and how we were set up and how we were created and why we were created, we have to make very strategic, um, smart, responsible growth choices. And so that adds a bit of complexity to how we grow and at the same time um, enables us to grow with a great sense of purpose. Our most well-known product is our eco-friendly toilet paper, where we have two different lines, one made from 100% recycled fibers and the other made from 100% recycled bamboo. I mean, not recycled, but 100% bamboo. Um, and both are better for the environment. And so what we try to do with our business is say, hey, how can we help businesses grow in a responsible way, but in a way that also gives back to the world and helps set the world better than when we put ourselves in it. And so um, that's part of the model of who we are and what we're about and why I love it so much. And the company started in Australia, is that right? But I know obviously you're in the US, big in the US and in the UK here as well. Cool. Um, yeah, I've been seeing some of your out-of-home ads over here recently, or I think it was towards the end of last year, which I do want to touch on as well. But yeah, going back to that one-off question, because um, I was just curious if that has helped to shape your approach since coming on board. But um, your role as chief brand officer, how does that differ from, if at all, kind of what a CMO, a more traditional kind of title and structure would be doing? So I would say it's the same from a um, responsibility standpoint as a CMO. And a lot of how we're structured today is very much like a traditional CPG, if you will. However, what's different is in leaning in on the chief brand officer, it reminds myself and my team and the rest of us to be a brand first organization. And so while we are still doing all the things that a CMO would do and a marketing organization would do, we're doing it from the vantage point of brand first. And I think that's pretty powerful and special, particularly in this organization, when if you think about it, toilet paper is a commodity. Um, but what makes us unique and special is the brand and not the product in and of itself. We have to deliver and make sure that the product quality delivers, and we do that in space, and we really put a lot of effort into that. But at the end of the day, what makes us special and why people even think about toilet paper and think about us is because of the brand and the brand we've built. And so I think you're already touching on that, and so it's a good segue, but would love to open up the playbook a little bit of how you've approached things in this first year and a half as a profit-led purpose business, you've still got, um, you know, every business has their own balance between, let's just call it at a high level, doing well commercially and trying to do good with whatever that means to them. You are obviously on an extreme end of one of that spectrum, at least relative to where much of the world and much of your category is today. So how have you approached that? Like, have there been some principles that you can share or just your perspective on trying to build a profit-led brand 
because I would imagine a lot of people listening, they are probably not in a business where they're donating 50% of their profits. But as we all know, this conversation of profit and purpose and purpose-led brands um, is a big one right now. So how have you approached that? What's worked well? What are some of the challenges that you face? Would love to just dig into that a little bit. It definitely comes with its own unique challenges. I will say one of the great things about this company is that it, it has grown responsibly um, and has been profitable since day one, minus one year, um, which was that first year of the pandemic where freight rates went up 10x. Uh, but other than that, we have continuously delivered year on year a profitable year. And that is because that's at the heart of our business model. And so it's interesting because every year we'll have really tough, deliberate conversations and choices on where we're going to invest and how we're going to invest, how much we're going to invest, how much we invest from a long-term perspective, how much we need to invest to deliver on our short-term annual returns, just like any business. Um, but you know, probably will be a lot more deliberate when it comes to some of those longer-term investments. And, you know, what we try to do is not spread ourselves like peanut butter, but rather pick a few big things to say, this is the one where we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to put our resources behind it. And we know that in year one, we're not going to get the ROI. Maybe year two, we will. But year three, this is where it's going to look. And we're constantly evaluating those things to say, hey, does it make sense? Do we need to pivot a little bit more? Do we need to double down? Um, and we're we're looking at how we're doing across the year. What's our profitability looking like? Are we beating the numbers that we had projected? If so, do we want to reinvest that? Um, are we behind? If not, do we need to pull back on some of these things? So it's some of the same business choices that you would make in any other business, except we're probably much more deliberate about what goes into um, short-term revenues versus long-term revenues, and then really conscious about our margins and saying, hey, we are largely, we started as largely a D2C business, but in order to actually grow and scale to the point where we want to and can help the world the way we want to, we have to scale and we have to grow volume and we have to grow profits. And that means moving into an omni-channel world. But in omni-channel world, when you start going into retail, the margins are a lot smaller than they are in D2C. And then we have to factor in things like cannibalization. You know, are we going to lose some of our D2C customers to retail? Is the overall pool that we're going to grow from retail um, worth it, given some of that cannibalization? And so we start to really look at all the levers. And probably more than other companies, we'll think about the domino effects of the choices that we make and then kind of hold hands as a team to say, you know what, we're going to lose a little bit of here, but overall, it's going to be bigger for us. And therefore, we are going to better deliver on our larger initiative to do good for the world. So it sounds like it it really is a balance in the sense that it's a constant calibration. It's not like you draw the line and then it's a straight and narrow path. It's 
a lot of communication, it sounds like, and a lot of judgment calls on this or that that are happening constantly. Um, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit in the next stage, and maybe I'll come back to it, but I'm just curious, especially with your experience working at bigger businesses, how that scales. Before we, before we go there, so I did just want to touch on what I've seen as an end consumer in the UK. Um, so I saw, you know, there's a two bad um, here in London, and it was a picture of the, you know, toilet roll, the TP toilet paper, and it said eco toilet paper that doesn't cost a buttload. And then there were kind of sub bullets. The first one was costs up to 30% less than leading brands. And then it said 100% recycled. So I'm curious because that's clearly leading with the economic reason to buy. And of course it includes the purpose, 100% recycled, if we want to call it that. But is that, well, um, you know, obviously it's intentional, but I'd just be curious, is that how you think about it where because we've heard this from a couple other kind of purpose-led brands or purposeful brands where they feel like the purpose side, at least when it comes to marketing communications, is kind of the icing on the cake. It's the nice to have on top that maybe could help break a tie, let's say, but really it's quality and price that are the bigger decision drivers. Is that how you think about it? You know, it really depends on the market. So one of the things is that we found is our brand awareness is different across the geos. Um, the sustainability hat that a lot of people wear, uh, the maturity of that is different across markets. And so the potency, what we're doing good and how we're doing good and what that means for people is different for different audiences across geos. And so what you've articulated is one piece of communication that we've created where we really think about the full 360. And so in some cases, we'll go harder on the ego message. In some cases, we'll go harder on the product message, which focuses on quality and value. Um, and so it's really where in the journey are you encountering the message? And so we, we try to hit all different angles depending on where you're meeting us or where we're meeting you. In that particular instance, we did lean harder first on quality and value. Um, and part of that is, yes, when you are an average consumer, TP is not a conscious choice most of the time. It's something you just have and you just kind of go on repeat this is your brand. You keep going, you keep going, you keep going. And so in many respects, a lot of what we do is to disrupt and say, notice me, because nobody notices toilet paper. And then when you think about that, the first things you think about are, well, I like my brand because I know it, and I know it does what it needs to do, whatever that is, whatever is important to you. And that's why it becomes more of this unconscious choice that you do you know, on a regular basis. And so we have to kind of disrupt that and say, hey, we're going to deliver and meet your needs, the needs that you have. Oh, and oh, by the way, you're going to feel good about it too. So it's almost like this journey that you take a consumer based on how they look at that category and how they behave in their own homes and being super conscious of that along the way as we create our marketing comms. Do you know the uh, personal care women's hygiene brand, Here We Flow? They're they're over here in the UK. They're also in the US. 
They're, um, I think, earlier stage than you, still growing, but they just did a couple of big retail partnerships in the U.S. So you'll probably see them pop up, but we had the co-founder, one of the co-founders on the show recently, and she said a couple of things that really have stuck with me. One, kind of similar to what you're saying, and I do want to dig into that a little bit more. She said you have to meet the customer where they are on their eco-sustainability journey. And she also said that they think of themselves as dark green on the inside and light green on the outside. Meaning if they, because they had the same kind of tension and thing to figure out when it came to this triangulation between quality, value, and purpose um, or sustainability. And so they found that they've had to go to market with maybe a lighter uh, touch on the sustainability front, at least until they get people in. But what I wanted to come back to is if it is about, and that totally makes sense, you know, understanding the nuances of the market, understanding the channel where you're showing up within the journey and how you need to communicate to people. How do you triangulate that? I guess it's customer research that you're doing. Is it a lot of A-B testing? What's the, if, if, if what I'm getting is you need to figure out how to balance those messages based on the context and the need state of the people that you're trying to reach at the time you're trying to reach them, how are you figuring out what that should look like? Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick break because we've actually heard from many of you that you want to get a better understanding of what it is that we actually do as a business. You know us through this podcast, all the content that we put out, the events that we put on, the community that we have, the media company side of what we're up to here at Rival. But actually the core business, just to kind of fill you all in, is we're a full service marketing agency at this point. Obviously we specialize in challenger brands. And what that means is that we work with either startups to help them scale and get to the next level, or we work with a lot of incumbents like Reebok, Unilever, JP Morgan to help them innovate or launch something new within the marketing function. We typically work across four main areas of the marketing department, brand and product positioning, creative ideation and production, paid media planning and buying, and customer data and marketing technology. We're also building some tech of our own, as you would have seen with Kiro and also Enodo. So that's it. Just wanted to fill you all in since you've asked for it. And if you're interested in hearing more about what we're up to, please get in touch. But with that, I'll let you get back to the show. It's a confluence of a lot of different factors. Yes, we both do qual and quant. We do A-B testing. We put things out in market and then we're just adjust accordingly, right? So I think part of it is being agile. And I think that's really key in this space um, when you don't have the dollars of the big CPG brands and you're competing against them, then you have to make your dollars work harder. And so a lot of it is kind of smart iterations. And so how do you learn, pick up some of that and adjust, learn and adjust, learn and adjust versus launch, leave it, test, get the learnings then adapt, right? Which is kind of the traditional CPG way. You have the luxury of that time. As a challenger brand and as a scale-up brand, you don't have that same luxury. Um, at the same time, being smaller, you probably have the um, the wings at your back saying like, you, you can be more agile, you can be more nimble, and you can make some of these adjustments that some of these big CPG brands can't. And so being able to use that to your advantage allows us to be able to, to adapt to the market more quickly. Moving on, we have this chapter talking about going from challenger to rival. So of course, that's a term 
you know, that we've kind of coined of moving from that kind of scrappy, <clears throat> disruptive startup within the category to trying to be the new incumbent. And so there's a few things that I'd love to touch on within Who Gives a Crap's journey on that transition. And before we go into the questions that we'd sent across ahead of time, I'd love to go back to what we were saying about that balance between purpose and profit. How were you thinking about how that scales? Because if a lot of it is about communication right now, and you know, part of what I'm picking up, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, is everybody is, for the most part, on the same page, shared perspective, in part because of the stage that the company's at, which is still you know, early on that journey, at least if we think about moving from challenger to rival. Is that something that you were intentionally planning for of how you make sure that you can keep that communication and that constant calibration, that balance as you scale? Or is that something that, um, you know, you think is always going to be there just by the nature of the business and the culture within it? Both. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's part of the essence of who we are. And so that's our DNA. So that's, that will always be there. It's up to us as we scale the business to say, how do we allow that essence to be part of every element of the company? Um, and so in many respects, when we're looking at work, we are a lot more deliberate on the ROI of the work now because we're starting to scale a lot faster and bigger. And so that means you're putting more dollars into the marketplace and you want to make sure that you're delivering against those, particularly since we know we want to um, deliver a profit. But we're also setting aside um, funds and systems for the bold and audacious, the things that scare us still, the things that could really take off or flop and it's okay. But allowing some of that space for that and being very deliberate about that ensures that we're able to kind of fuel that engine, that fiery engine to say, we can still do this. We've got this. You know what? We're still David against Goliath and we're going to go after this. Um, now, that's something we've learned along the way as we're scaling. But what we found is by having more of that in place, then you're able to bring some of that fiery spirit into some of the more um, deliberate choices that we're making from a marketing mix and a marketing ROI standpoint. And how do we push some of that boldness to continue to thrive in that space while also saying, hey, we need some tried and true in this that's going to deliver because now we're starting to add a few more zeros to the mix. One of the things that I've heard so often, and we actually did an episode at the end of last year about kind of key takeaways from all the scratch episodes and guests we've had so far. But one of the things I heard most consistently was was exactly that concept of having some type of budget or some type of time, or at least some priority and focus on taking big swings that might not work out, but it's a push for kind of innovation, 10x ideas, et cetera. I'd just be curious, you know, I think Every, um, you know, there's a lot of people, whether you're in the CMO seat or within a marketing team in an organization that kind of buys into that already or has that culture and a lot that probably don't for the people that don't, that want to be doing something like that. Like, how do you make that case if there's not the buy-in from the top already? I think you kind of have to show the examples out there that say, Hey, these have delivered. Um, and this is because it's out of the system. 
right? The system is to kind of create scale and to almost create predictable results, if you will. Um, But it's out of the system where you really get the, oh my gosh, I never would have gotten there had I followed these steps. Uh, And if that is something the organization really wants, then it's almost like building this alternate system. It kind of sounds strange, but it is. You're building an alternate system in parallel to say, this is the one where we're going to deliver, we're going to hit the numbers, we're going to make this work. And this is the one where you might get that added bonus because this might just shoot for the moon and really hit it. Or if it doesn't work, it's okay because it's not going to affect what we are set to deliver. And I think that's the big key, right, is to say, okay, within this, we're going to deliver. This one, don't worry about it. But if something amazing happens, great, we can all celebrate. This other kind of system, if you will, this other part where where you can encourage innovation and can encourage bold and audacious ideas is also the part that motivates your team. And it's the part when your team is motivated, then they're going to bring some of that great fiery spiritedness to kind of the main body of work that needs to deliver. And so you kind of just bring in this cycle of creativity that is really important for a challenger brand to really stand up or even, you know, going from challenger to rival and maintaining that spirit. In order to maintain that spirit, you've got to have the engine that's going to fuel that spirit. And you really need to have those kind of wins on the board or those headlines of things that you can point to that keep people excited and keep people motivated and keep people convinced that you should continue to try to do more. Um, So another element of this transition from challenge to rival, kind of getting to scale within the the disruption of the category that you're pushing, um, I'd love to hear about kind of going mainstream, reaching a wider audience. You already talked about the investment in retail distribution. I know your audience and aspiration is to reach, quote, every bum. How else are you approaching that? And what are some of the strategies for going from more of a niche D2C disruptor brand to more of a mainstream brand that people can uh, find anywhere that they already know about that they accept? We kind of touched on this a little bit before. You know, eco products hammering on the eco side of things isn't necessarily going to convert the masses. Um, It's definitely the gateway to your hardcore base and you always want to fuel that base. But as you start to expand, as we've discussed, the eco journey for folks in different markets is, is very different, right? Some are very light, some are very heavy. And at the end of the day, as you scale, you need to appeal to the broader audiences. And so this is where brand starts to come in. I talked a little bit about this earlier, where at the end of the day, toilet paper is a commodity. And I'm I'm just using this as one example as our core product, but it's the brand that needs to resonate. And so when we think about that and leaning into that superpower of who we are as a brand, We are a brand that delights, that brings smiles to folks' faces, um, and that brings bright, joyful imagery, patterns, designs to kind of bring people into the folds of the brand. And then it's like that one-two punch. Then you've got kind of the brand tone of voice with the cheekiness 
and the delight and the fun and the puns and how we approach our comms that really bring it to life in another way. And so it's that personality that the brand has that really shines through and we're pretty consistent about our tone of voice as well as the delightful colors and patterns that kind of bring your attention and get your get folks to look at us. So first, get folks to look at us, notice us, and then when they do, give them a smile, give them a laugh with our tone of voice. And that's pretty consistent. And then one of the things is once you've gotten their attention, then it's the, oh, wow, you donate 50% of your profits? That is a unique space that we play in the purpose world. Um, and so I think that always kind of gives the, oh, uh, with folks and potential consumers and existing consumers. And then it's the, and oh, by the way, we're doing everything we can to do this in a way that is as best for the planet as it can be. And so it's it's almost like you're just leaning into who you are as a persona and making sure that that persona resonates with a broader audience. On the profit side of things. So if you're donating 50% of your profit, I would imagine you don't have, and also just at the scale that you're at, you don't have the budgets that a lot of the competitors do in the category. Um, if you've heard the term constraints drive creativity, is that how you try to think about it when it comes to budgets for marketing? And has that helped you innovate and do more disruptive things as a challenger? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, David Ogilvy once said, give me the freedom of a tight brief. He knew that creative effectiveness came from focus and clarity of constraints. In many respects, you can apply a similar outlook to empower teams to be more creative. We'll never win going head to head with playing the traditional media game, dollar for dollar. We lose on that game. But we don't want to lose. We don't want to lose because we have a greater purpose. We have a greater purpose that inspires us to win. And in order to do that, we have to be more creative within the constraints of the smaller budgets. And so we're very choiceful when it comes to how are we going to stand out with this media? How are we going to get shares? How are we going to get people to talk about us? You know, our marketing mission is about getting more bums and driving advocacy. Because we know that if others talk about us, others share us, others represent us, that that is going to be more powerful than a consumer hearing from us directly 10 times. And so how do we create that engine that says some of the things that we're going to do, how do we do it in such a way that people will want to share it? People will want to talk about it. And that's how we think about creativity and say, okay, we have X dollars. Now we need it to work 100 times more for us. And the only way for that to happen is through earned and shared media. I love that um, idea. And I think it's something that, you know, obviously advocacy is something that people talk about a lot, but I really like how you framed it up. And in my mind, it was almost like, you know, landing the customer is just one of the goals that you're working towards. But actually it's about, in my mind, the words of follow through come up, you know, if you wind up for a pitch or a throw, you release the ball, but then you have to follow through in order to make sure that it's going to go where you want. But you're almost thinking about the brief and the approach and the objective of marketing, not stopping at did somebody buy the product, but actually following through all the way, is somebody going to advocate for this product and for our brand? Yeah. And I would say that's why we even wrap 
our individual toilet paper wrappers, right? So it's it's that follow through. The consumer will buy it and then they will display it. So when people come over, others see it. So talking about innovation, um, the thing that I wanted to get your perspective on is how your remit, your team, your function, branded marketing, how does it work with product to drive innovation for the product line and the business overall? Brand has to be at the core of our product innovation and is. So when we build our product pipeline, we look at the intersection of what could fit within our brand of where it is today, what is the white space in the marketplace, and then what will work well with our business model. So it's not even just the product and the brand, but also our particular model. And we kind of look at those three circles and look for, you know, the Venn diagram and what's in the center and say, okay, this is our bullseye. This is where we're going to build from. And so we're quite deliberate in looking at not only what could resonate well in the marketplace, but also we're a D2C first business. Now we are growing into omni-channel, but the reality is if our profit for purpose is at the heart of it, the greatest profits will come from D2C. And as you move your way to shelf, profits are less, but volume grows. And so there's that balance. And so when we think about that, we always think about our D2C business at the core to say, okay, if it can work here, then we can work in other channels as well. But really looking at our business model, the opportunity in the marketplace, and then our brand, how can we make this distinct and unique? And if we can't, we shouldn't be creating it. And does that, so, I mean, clearly just listening to you and it shows in the product itself, in the marketing that I've seen in everything that I've come across with the brand, it's clearly a brand led company, you know, my words at least, um, but it leans in that direction. And so obviously that's part of it. I'm sure if we bring it down to the level of the conversations that you're having with the product team or whatever that looks like, there is kind of already an expectation or an acceptance for those conversations to happen. But, you know, if we kind of like open up the hood of week to week, month to month, this, I almost think of it as like a joint within the body of a company between marketing and product. What does that look like? Like, do you, is there kind of like a weekly meeting? How are you, if it's about making sure that the brand is at the center of everything, how are you actually doing that? So our brand strategy is baked into the foundation of the product strategy. So even as products are being looked at, one of the first layers is that brand strategy. And that's how it's intertwined in each. And, and within our organization, product innovation sits within marketing so that there is that very close um, relationship and synergistic approach to innovating um, and really thinking about, you know, one of the discussions we had was really interesting in the sense of, Who's our target audience today, but who's our target audience in three years as we grow in this omni-channel space? And thinking about that, knowing that a product pipeline can be like two years long, how do we think about that and look ahead? So having those strategic conversations early on and baking that into the development is how we're able to kind of ensure that, that our innovation roadmap is very much aligned to who we are as a brand. And then 
how we can go to market in a way that is uniquely us and differentiated in the marketplace. So that's super interesting. So product innovation sits in marketing. So it's you and your team, obviously working with other uh, teams within the business that are really thinking about and driving forward. How do we innovate? How do we iterate? How do we evolve our product offering, not just the brand? Yep. Fascinating. All right. I know that we are running out of time. I want to make sure that we can do a quick lightning round if you're up for it. So I got five questions, just quick one or two sentence answers. Let's start with what is the biggest win that you've had recently? Ooh, we're launching in our first U.S. retailer. It will be on shelves nationally in the spring. Um, so that is a big win, something I'm super, super excited about. I can't really disclose it yet because it's not public, but uh, in the spring, watch out, we'll be on shelves in the U.S. It'll be great. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'll be able to find it when I'm back home in Boston this summer. And yes, you will. <laughs> cool. I'll look out for it. Uh, what is the biggest struggle that you're currently dealing with? You know, um, as we're growing on multiple vectors, we've launched a sister brand in personal care with good time. We've obviously grown into the retail channel space. We're on Amazon and some geos. We're also growing into 360 marketing, doing above the line campaigns, et cetera. We talked about um, being able to be nimble and agile. At the same time, we still have the same resources. And so some of the shifts and changes collide with the same folks. And so the balance of maintaining that agility while also making sure that we don't overwhelm the, our internal teams is something that we're struggling with um, a little bit and trying to find that right balance is how do we keep saying, oh, we've learned, let's adapt. At the same time, there's certain plans in place that makes things easier to balance from a resource standpoint. And when you deviate from that, that starts to like rub a little bit. And so how do we keep our teams motivated, excited, and and making sure that they're not working all the time is a balance that we're trying to look out for. What is the best marketing resource that you found recently? There's so much out there. Um, however, honestly, I found the best to be other marketers. I think leaning into marketers in the industry to say, what are your challenges? This is my challenge. And having the discussion is a lot more effective than reading an article. But um, when I do have to read an article, you know what I found really interesting as of late is actually the LinkedIn blogs because they're very current and they're to the point. They're short, they're crisp. Um, and so that's been kind of a source for me at least recently. Yeah, they're really they're really pushing that content and also the crowdsource content. But I totally agree with you in terms of the resource of being other marketers. And it's been fascinating watching this kind of AMP community that we should get you involved in, that we have on WhatsApp with, for senior marketers, just how that's naturally evolved to be a place where people are just chiming in, asking for input, discussing challenges. It's really great. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned so far in your career? Whether personally as a professional or as a steward of the brand, um, it's about owning your authenticity. So rather than trying to be like everybody else or leveraging, um, you know, some of the things that have worked for other folks, knowing what makes you uniquely you and cultivating that as your superpower, whether you as a person, as a professional, or, or you as a steward for the brand, um, that is something that I think if I always lean into and go back to and say, okay, I am here for this reason because I uniquely bring this to the table. 
And whether I is me or I is the brand, um, it's the same. It's about saying, this is what uniquely makes you you, so own it. Own it and make it your superpower. Last question. What's one thing people should do differently after listening to this episode? I don't think we pause enough. So I would say pause, take a step back, and reflect on who you really are and how you want to be as a marketing leader. Do the same for the brand. Pause, reflect. What is it really about? Do you know enough of the DNA to say what you want this brand to be? And then kind of juxtapose the two and say, where's that intersection? Because if you can find that intersection and it's pretty crystal crystal clear, then you can really pave a powerful path forward in leading and growing your brand. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. I love it. I'm putting that on my to-do list for later this week. So thank you for that. Ronalee, I really appreciate you making the time this morning. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is great. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.